0: In April 2018, perhaps one of the most highly anticipated deals in recent memory entered full public spotlight. T-Mobile and Sprint announced plans to merge for almost $27 billion. With previous attempts over the past decade to decrease the number of U.S. wireless carriers cut short by regulators, T-Mobile and Sprint were virtually assured a scrupulous review from the Department of Justice and the Federal Communications Commission. In this instance, the pair would also find themselves battling a multi-state litigation effort to block the deal, led by California and New York. Nevertheless, this past April, with the help of some major divestitures and conditions, T-Mobile and Sprint closed their merger after almost two years of regulatory reviews and courtroom battles, transforming the wireless communications market into an arena of three superpowers. Today, we will kick off a series of three podcasts dedicated to the landmark T-Mobile Sprint merger and the onerous process to see it closed. Our episode will dive into the overall strategy formed to obtain successful clearance for the transaction, including the development of the business case and the public and regulatory messaging, as well as the individual strategies developed for various stakeholders, including the DOJ, the FCC, the state attorney generals, and state utility commissions. For The Deal, I'm Tom Terrorosa. I'm sitting here today with T-Mobile Executive Vice President and General Counsel David Miller and Cleary Gottlieb partner Mark Nelson. Thank you for joining us today, gentlemen.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So in preparing for this latest merger attempt, my understanding is that substantial discussions between these two telecom giants actually occurred in 2017, but ultimately they fell apart due to the economic terms of the transaction. The two of you, who have known each other for several years, put in a great deal of work in 2017 preparing for the deal to go through. And coming back to the table in 2018, I imagine you picked up somewhat from where you left off, but there must have been some things to iron out ahead of the transaction this time around. David, how did you pick up the effort from the 2017 transaction? And how did the team generally start when trying to develop a strategy that would work across such a broad range of diverse set of stakeholders?
1: And thanks for the question, Tom. The starting point for the strategy, and frankly, the touchstone throughout, was the business case that we put together for the merger. And that business case, in turn, was heavily founded on the network that we would be able to create by putting these two companies together. Our two companies had spectacularly complementary assets, including spectrum and network assets. And when you put those two companies together, it would create a network the likes of which had never been put together frankly in the world especially on the dawn of the 5g era so the business case that we put together showed that if you put these companies together we would be creating a network that had unprecedented capacity unprecedented supply it would generate massive cost synergies and would create a network that had spectacularly better performance than either of the two companies' networks could provide, again, on the dawn of the 5G era. And a network with significant depth and reach that could provide to many Americans who are unconnected, particularly in rural areas and the like, underconnected, would provide, for the first time, bona fide, legitimate alternatives to not just AT&T in the wireless space, but also to broadband providers in areas where they face no competition. So the touchstone and the starting point was the business case. And that business case showed that we would be able to provide significantly lower prices, significantly better quality. We would be able to add jobs. We would be able to take the U.S. and this was an important point to the forefront in the race for 5G superiority across the world. And again, we would be able to provide competition, not enhanced competition, not just in the wireless business per se, but also in the in-home broadband business. And so what you have there then is you have a, a business case that was, in our view, frankly, perfectly aligned with what the stakeholders and the regulators would be looking for. Our interests were perfectly aligned, we believe and still believe, and I think it's proven to be the case. They're interested in lower prices, we were gonna deliver lower prices. They're interested in better quality, we're gonna be able to deliver better quality. They're interested in providing deeper and better performance, network performance and connectivity across America, we were gonna be able to provide that. We were gonna add American jobs. And we were gonna help ensure uh, leadership in the 5G era and greater innovation. And so at the end of the day, the business case we believe. Matched up perfectly with the interest of these stakeholders and the regulators, and so in that sense, the business case was kind of the starting point and the ending point, and and the touchstone throughout of our strategy.
0: And Mark, do you have any thoughts on how the team got started ahead of this transaction?
2: Yeah, I think I think Dave captured it well. I mean, the core of our legal strategy and communications about the transaction all had to be fully grounded in the business case. As Dave said, that was the touchstone. And the legal framework that the agencies, the DOJ and FCC in particular, applies critical context for that strategy. But we built our advocacy and developed our evidence with that framework in mind, but always tying back to the business case as as the most fundamental um, guiding principle.
0: So in both a $40 billion takeover attempt of T-Mobile in 2011 and preliminary merger talks between Sprint and T-Mobile in 2014, the DOJ and FCC were firmly and vocally against the transactions. In particular, the idea of removing a down market player such as T-Mobile from the wireless space, where it traditionally provided more affordable options than its larger competitors, was troublesome for regulators. Why, having this precedent of two previously shut down deals for T-Mobile, including one involving Sprint, did the team believe they could get this transaction done in 2020? Mark?
2: The Sprint-T-Mobile merger was very different than the, the AT&T deal back in 2011. It was more of a two-to-three transaction than a four-to-three transaction because you really had two high-end players that pretty much everybody recognized were the the dominant players in the industry, AT&T and Verizon, that's really allowed the combined company to take them on. In 2014, there was a Sprint T-Mobile merger being considered. Neither the DOJ nor the FCC really had the opportunity to do a full review of the proposed Merger and neither company presented a fully developed business plan along the lines of what we just talked about before. The heads of the agencies reacted negatively to the the idea of the merger, and there were a lot of rumors in the press at the time, but it didn't fully play out through a formal regulatory process. So we didn't view that as a good indicator of where we would be in 2018 when the deal actually happened and we had a a fully developed business plan. And we're confident that that business case would be compelling to the regulators, very much aligned with what the, the legal framework that's applied by both the FCC and the DOJ.
0: Mark, what role did a change in the administration have in your strategy? When Donald Trump took office in 2017, obviously, there was a perception that the administration would be at least somewhat more merger-friendly. Did that play into the timing of this deal and the strategy involved at all?
2: Uh, Having a new administration was not as important as having a compelling, well-documented business strategy. And that proved critical because we ultimately had to go to court to defend the merger. And the administration doesn't really come into play when you're litigating with, with the states. And so we had to put our case before a federal judge. And that judge was, I think, rightly persuaded by what he heard from the business people.
0: So as we get closer in some markets to duopolies and monopolies, You can imagine regulators getting a bit more prickly in deal reviews. How did you overcome the four to three aspect of the transaction here, Mark?
2: There are obviously some who started with that four to three mindset and then assumption that that kind of change in market structure is not going to be good for consumers. But at the same time, I think there was also a widely understood and widely held correct perception that the market had really been dominated by the big two players, AT&T and Verizon, and that this deal would present an opportunity for T-Mobile to truly challenge that position. So in a sense, it's, it's more of a two to three than a four to three transaction. But ultimately, though, it's not really about the number of players uh, and not as much about the number of players in the market as it is about the viability of the underlying business plan. The, the plan here, in short, was to give consumers more for less and to greatly expand coverage, and quality of service. You know, the government agencies who reviewed the deal and the judge who tried the case charged with sorting out whether the merger will be net positive or net negative for consumers. And if you look at the business case that was presented, it's clear that consumers would be better off. And, and that's exactly how the judge came out. And that's obviously where the regulators landed as well.
0: And David, did you have any further thoughts on that?
1: I agree with what Mark said, of course. I think that one of the challenges that we had was that um, four to three was a very, very convenient uh, moniker or, or buzzword uh, made made for a good soundbite. And in a sense, it made for a good political point. And of course, it was founded in, uh, at least in our case, in the prior AT&T uh, T-Mobile merger attempt where the two federal agencies essentially said that they preferred a wireless market with four players and so in that sense we were swimming upstream in terms of our ability to articulate messaging that could counter the four to three point. But as Mark said, I believe we had the facts and and ultimately the law on our side. And we were able to, again, refer to the business case. And one of the things that we were able to show, Tom, was that the four to three, there's a presumption there that if you go from four players to three players in a market, that the relative supply will go down there'll be contraction in the market. In our case, the opposite was true. And I, I think it's fairly atypical, but the opposite was true where you put these two companies together and due to the physics involved and the spectrum being put together and the networks being put together, the net result was actually significantly more, significantly more supply than, than either company combined would be able to provide as standalone entities. And so that was a very powerful point Grounded in physics, and um, so that's something that was was very different. And we were able to, uh, I believe, ultimately demonstrate that to the, the stakeholders and the agencies. And when you do have this massive increase in supply, and you have coupled with massive cost synergies, as you know, Tom, uh, the result of that is that a rational economic player will lower prices in order to capture uh, share. And it just makes economic sense. And as Mark also pointed out, the numbers ultimately don't matter, but you know, one thing that we also pointed out, it wasn't necessarily a front and center point, but you could also look at this industry as going from eight to seven, right? Because you had, unlike in prior eras, you had an influx and do and still do have an influx. Of new entrants, particularly well-capitalized new entrants, such as the cable operators, who are meaningful players in in the wireless industry now. So, Mark, I have to
0: ask you, where did the divestiture of Boost Mobile factor into your strategy? Was this divestiture how you planned all along to address those down market concerns from prior telecom merger attempts? Or was it developed along the way as you dug in and prepared cases for each of the stakeholders here?
2: Divesting boost wasn't part of the strategy to obtain clearance at the outset, because we thought the merger should go through without any divestitures or or commitments or remedies. But T-Mobile was prepared for that possibility, being aware of the the down-market issue, and we anticipated that government agencies might focus on prepaid brands, which which tend to offer the lower-cost plans as part of their assessment of the deal. So that, that's an area where both Sprint and T-Mobile had strength. So we were aware that that was a risk, but it, it wasn't presented as part of a solution up front or really wasn't part of the overall strategy.
0: And how about you, David? Did you see the boost transaction
1: coming? Tom, good question. I mean, I think going into a merger of this magnitude, you clearly have to think through all the possibilities. And it was not lost on us, that there could be some efforts made to have us divest certain assets, including uh, potentially one of our prepaid brands. And so like anything else, we were prepared for that possibility. We thought that we had presented a, a very compelling case. But as Mark said, you know, you have to be prepared for those types of contingencies
0: So, Mark, how did the team present the case to the DOJ, to the FCC, and to the various states?
2: Well, as we anticipated well before the the deal was struck, we started by explaining what the new T-Mobile network would look like, using the combined assets of the two companies, the, the spectrum and the network assets, because everything followed from that. Everything builds on that network. That's that's how these companies develop and sell their services, and the underlying cost structure of that network is also very important to what you're able to offer to consumers. What you know, what's commercially feasible, uh, all builds on that foundation. And for T-Mobile to carry on with it, its extremely successful consumer-oriented approach to the business, T-Mobile needed to have a stronger network, and a more competitive cost structure to genuinely take on the dominant players, AT&T and Verizon. And so that was our starting point. And then we brought the business people in to explain the business case, and we presented it within the legal framework that the each agency applies to the mergers. And what also fed into that was some economic work. We had world-class economists assisting <laughs> And who took the business case, the commercial case, and explained it in economic terms? Why it is that when you have this massive expansion of capacity and lowering of cost structure, why that enables and is sensible for the business to pursue aggressive pricing and offerings and continue its uncarrier strategy. I think the agencies came into the process skeptical because, at a surface level, there's a four to three issue. on it. But once they understood the engineering and the compelling economics behind combining the networks, they, they were persuaded that consumers would come out on top. And, uh, you know, some states obviously weren't persuaded. They, they you know, brought a lawsuit because they couldn't get past this, this four to three way of thinking about the merger. But ultimately, we prevailed because we were right about the engineering and the economics. And there was no serious challenge even by the states to those benefits from the deal. The judge in the case really dug in on the business plan. He questioned the CEOs. He questioned the engineers, including T-Mobile's chief technology officer. He asked some questions directly. And, and I think he found the business case compelling. What we said would come to pass is already coming to pass. I think we've been vindicated by what we've seen in the market. and T-Mobile was able to, in the past few months, cut the, its lowest price offering in half. It offers a two gigabyte plan for $15. And T-Mobile started to launch a more robust 5G network than any of its competitors have. And in fact, as you may have seen in the, in the press lately, T-Mobile has recently passed AT&T as the number two carrier in terms of number of subscribers. And you don't get bigger, you don't win more subscribers unless you're offering better deals, more higher quality, lower cost. And so I think all of the things we said would come to pass have already started to happen. I think the judge called that right.
0: And David, did you have any further thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think one of the, one of the keys to what was ultimately a successful merger uh, in terms of presenting to the uh, DOJ, FCC, of the states, et cetera, was heavy involvement and critical involvement by the senior-most management business leaders of, of both companies, frankly. So you had our CEO at the time, John Ledger, Mike Sievert, current CEO, then president, Neville Ray, who is our chief technology officer, Marcelo Clare on the Sprint side, as well as Michelle Combs. Those folks gave generously of their effort and of their time to get in front of, of the regulators to put a human face on it and to buttress and supplement and bring to life the models that we had prepared that uh, showed that given our business plan, putting these two companies together would permit lower prices and better quality, et cetera. And, and Mark and our outside and inside legal teams, I think did a great job, and, and our economist teams did a great job, but I think it was also critical that we had the leaders of the company who would layer on these models and show that these aren't just uh, yes, these models show that any rational economic player would expand output, lower prices, etc. But I think it was important to have the leaders in the company come in and explain that that is precisely what they were going to do. Further buttressed by the fact that that's at least certainly in the case of T-Mobile and the Sprint as well. That's how we got to be successful, right? We didn't get to be successful by keeping prices high and by not being innovative and the like. And so we were able to put our leaders in front of these regulators and show, if you give us this set of assets and this cost structure and this scale, we could take what had been, yes, very successful in the marketplace, but we could genuinely give the two big goliaths in the industry, at and and Verizon. A genuine run for their money. And so I don't think that can be understated, the impact of, uh, of having very, very active and frequent interaction with the senior business leaders in both companies.
0: Mark, given that the government usually wins in merger cases, how did T-Mobile feel about your prospects having to litigate against the state attorney generals?
2: I think you know we were, we were confident in our ability to win because we knew we had a strong business case and the states didn't ever seriously challenge our core evidence of the efficiencies that would be unleashed by the merger. And we were fortunate to have a judge who was willing to put in the time and effort to really understand the evidence and engage with the company's executives at trial. Uh, you know, Judge Marrero was able to get behind the high-level talking points and legal presumptions and focus on understanding what's truly likely to happen in the real world once the two companies combine and start to go after AT&T and Verizon. And frankly, when we saw that level of engagement by the judge at trial, where he was really digging in and talking, having a conversation with the executives from both companies, our confidence level uh, that we would prevail uh, only increased because we knew he was taking interest in it. He wasn't coming in in this with a mindset that this is just about the number of players in the industry. And frankly, he did a remarkable job given as a only a two week trial. And obviously, we think we did a great job presenting the case. But for a federal judge who knew very little about this is not a subject matter expert steps into this. And he looks at the record, he sits through a two week trial, the level of sophistication and understanding in the decision he reached is really remarkable. and That's a testament, I think, to, to how our, our federal court systems can work if you have judges who are willing to, to put in the time.
0: Okay.
1: David, would you agree with those points? I think Mark captured the key points. In a sense, we looked forward to the opportunity of going in front of a uh, neutral arbiter to present the case. And again, I just repeat. I think we did it. We did a very good job of showing that the business case and the models would lead to a pro-competitive outcome. But as Mark said, it was really the testimony, I think, of the humans that we're actually going to take this combined company and operate it and build this network, put aggressive offers in the marketplace, and also, again, given our track record of T-Mobile and also of Sprint, but given our track record that and and he said several times that in his opinion that it was his job was to look into the crystal ball. And I think when he looked into the crystal ball with the benefit of the testimony from the actual human beings that were going to be running this company and had been running the two prior companies I think he was persuaded that the, the transaction would be pro-competitive. And to their credit, I think the state put on a very, very strong case as well. But I think at the end of the day, the judge was correctly persuaded that, that this would be a great merger for consumers in America, frankly. So how does one go about selecting team members internally and externally
0: for a massive undertaking such as this, David? David.
1: Good question. We have a team and I don't want to forget our merger partner Sprint. They also had a very, very strong team of internal and external folks. But in in terms of the T-Mobile case, I think we have a very, very deep and talented bench of internal uh, lawyers, at least on the legal side also engineers and and business folks, but I'll focus on the legal side. So we have very experienced and talented folks that have been involved in, as you said at the beginning, there have been prior merger attempts. We had a a merger in 2013 that did succeed, Metro PCS, a lot of the same principles involved. So I had the luxury of having a very, very deep bench and a talented bench. And I, I had some of my colleagues were leading certain aspects of the overall project. So Kathleen Hamm, who's our government affairs chief in D.C., headed up the FCC process. Melissa Scanlon, who's a a deeply experienced antitrust lawyer on my team, headed up the DOJ. We had Michelle Thomas, longtime telecom veteran on our team, who headed up the state's effort. And then we had Lauren Venezia, who headed up our effort to win approval, CFIUS approvals, which is one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot, but that was also a, a very critical effort as well. And so we had the benefit of a very talented group of folks, as well as a, a lot of experience in in the M&A space. And then on the external side, uh, very similar. We had, like you mentioned at the top, that Mark and I have known each other for a long time, and that's true. Mark and, and the Clery team are just, uh, spectacular antitrust lawyers, They and, and importantly, they know the industry and they know our company. They came to learn our company. They know uh, the key players in our company. They know uh, the business. They know their network technology. Uh, and so they we, we, we had others as well. We had other counsel that we relied on for aspects of the case. And as Mark mentioned, also we had a, a team of economists that we relied on. So, so how do we pick them? I believe that I'm biased again, but I think I have probably the strongest group of, of internal experts that I could rely on. And also we picked folks that had, on the external side, that had experience in the telecom arena, that had deep antitrust experience, and in all cases, knew the company and uh, knew the players and they knew their stuff so that's essentially how we how we pick the team we think we pick the strongest possible team to give us the best possible chance to get this merger over the line
0: so what lessons should companies considering transactions and relatively concentrated industries take from the success here
2: I think that the major lesson I would take away is that it's important to have a clear business vision from the outset as yeah. to how your transaction is going to benefit consumers. And to have that vision well-documented going in, you don't necessarily, from a business's perspective, need to go as far uh, in business planning as you might for being able to build things out at a level of detail that the regulators will want to see them. So it took a lot of extra upfront work. I mean, the business knows that they can take some shortcuts in their own mind and in the documentation because they know their business well. But when you get in front of the regulators, you're going to have to explain things from the ground up. And so they knew that they needed to build things from the ground up and have it done with a solid foundation and well-documented. You know, few mergers will draw as much attention as ours did, but if you know your deal is going to get close scrutiny from an antitrust perspective, it is worth taking that time and, and have a good sense for what your business case is and how you're going to present it to government regulators, and if necessary, in front of a federal judge. And obviously, you also want to compile advisors outside, obviously, and internally, as much as you have the expertise, who have experience and can help guide you through that process.
0: As we said at the onset of our chat, And as I've gathered more from this discussion, it appears you've both gone through this rigmarole more than once. As a result, I'm sure many of your decisions were made instinctually without a second thought. But I still feel like there might be some things you'd change given the chance. David, is there anything you would have done differently looking back on the experience?
1: Thanks for the question. Great question, Tom. I don't think there's a lot that we would do differently. If I had to look at something, for example, we might engage with states earlier in the process. You know, Your natural tendency is to be focused on the entities from whom you know you need an affirmative approval. Uh, and so we're focused on DC, and uh, we certainly were focused on the states, but you know, may, maybe a little bit more on the front end, uh, including the use of having our executives uh, meet with them a little bit earlier in the process. The other thing that I would do differently, kind of a, a funny little insight, and that is, We had a a large team of external lawyers. This was an interesting merger because both companies are independent entities, but they each have controlling foreign shareholders. So we essentially had four companies that were involved. Each company had counsel who, by the way, worked together spectacularly. That was one of the joys of the transaction, was just how well they worked together. One of the key things that we we were focused on before the trial was the, the opening statements, right? Very, very critical in a very concise, pithy, and persuasive way to lay out our case, the case of the merger in the opening statement. So hours and hours and hours of preparation, hours and hours and hours of debate of exactly how we should structure that opening statement. And many sleepless nights and a lot of work went into that. And we walk into the courtroom, George Carey, Mark's partner, is prepared to deliver the opening statement. And our friend Judge Marrero, pretty much the first thing he said is, In the interest of an efficient trial, we're going to not do opening statements. So if I had to do it over again, I would have looked in my own crystal ball and I would have realized that there might be a chance that that might occur. But no, obviously you have to prepare for those things, but it would have been nice to know that in advance.
0: And how about you, Mark? Any regrets?
2: Given where we ended up, obviously I would be reluctant to change anything significant because it was a great result ultimately. I think Dave's right that If I could do one thing differently, I would probably be engaging with the state AGs more directly with the business people, explaining the benefits of the deal for consumers. The the states were largely paired up with the DOJ watching. They they were heavily involved, but there wasn't as much separate engagement with them. Also, when, when you talk about the benefits of any deal, there's a tendency to focus on the high end of things, or the new things that you can achieve. And that's what people get excited about and think about. And here, there was a lot of excitement about how this deal would unleash the power of 5G and create a platform to be a world leader in new applications driven by 5G. But in reality, some of the most immediate and tangible benefits of the merger are at the low-cost end of the spectrum, which benefits low-income and at-risk individuals tremendously. And we've seen that, as, as I mentioned before, with the launch of T-Mobile's two gigabyte plan for only $15 it cut in half its lowest cost plan. That that not only saved people money, but also made high speed internet access more affordable and more available to those who may not have had it before. And the fact that they were able to do that just as the COVID crisis hit made it even more impactful. If we had focused more at that end of the spectrum and, and brought those benefits to life sooner rather than talking about all the great new things that'll happen with 5G. That, that might have made it more real and understandable and made clear that we're addressing all of the constituencies that these regulators, including state AGs, care about.
0: Okay, interesting. So we'll end today's discussion there. For our audience, check back soon for the next two parts of this series, where we will dig deeper into the complicated regulatory process surrounding the merger of two of the nation's largest cell phone carriers. I'm Tom Tararosa for The Deal. I've been speaking with T-Mobile General Counsel David Miller and Cleary Gottlieb partner Mark Nelson. Thanks for tuning in.